Stay alert, control the virus, save lives. That's the slogan for England, which the government unveiled as part of plans to ease the country from the coronavirus lockdown. But it faced criticism, with some people claiming it was vague. So I did a poll from our Jack FM News account, it's Emma, by the way, from the news team, to find out what you lot think about the new message now you've had a bit of time to get used to it. I can reveal nearly 43% of you lot said it's still clear as mud. Nearly 28% said it makes sense. Almost 30% went for, I'm so alert. And no one voted to say that it's better than the last one, which was stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Well, some of you might be pleased to know that new advertisements have started appearing to run alongside the stay alert slogan, which includes advising us to keep our distance. In other news, Boris Johnson has also revealed plans to reopen our schools on the 1st of June. One of our local MPs asked the Education Secretary an urgent question on that. You'll be hearing from Lil Moran shortly. Also in this podcast, we mark Mental Health Awareness Week and National Thanker Teacher Day. But first, hear from a man in Oxford who's taking part in the university's coronavirus vaccine trial. Over 1,000 people have been recruited for it and have been randomly given either a real dose of the trial vaccine or a meningitis jab. I asked Paul why he volunteered. So it's obvious people were going to be going through a pretty tough time. Um, I wouldn't consider myself a key worker, so I thought it was a way that I could contribute into uh, resolving this crisis. What does it actually involve? So to start with, went in for a health checkup, a bit of an MOT, um, to make sure I was fit and healthy, um, accepted onto the trial. Um, they explained the process to us, uh, and obviously any possible risks. Um, on the day, they took some further health tests just to make sure we were, were fit. Um, gave the vaccination um, to either the COVID vaccine or I tried and tested meningitis one as a placebo. Um, and then, uh, yeah, that's it. What have you done so far? So after the jab, we've been taking a daily diary to focus on any of our symptoms, um, taking temperatures and reporting back to the trial any other symptoms we've been um, observing. Um, on a weekly diary, we've also been um, reporting our exposure to, to other people and the routines that we've been taking as preventative measures. Um, we'll be going back in a, a few weeks for further blood tests and another health checkup. How do you feel being involved in this? Obviously, all the risks were out, outlaid to us and it seemed um, pretty minimal. Um, the first day after the jab was a little tired and achy, but nothing more than what I'd expect from an animal food. I've been fine since with, with no other symptoms. And why do you think that these kind of research trials are important? Um, so it's obviously a good opportunity for any healthy adults and those that already don't donate blood on a regular basis to contribute to medical advancement, um, obviously in the hope that this crisis and any future issues can be resolved quickly, saving lives of many people. That was Paul speaking exclusively to Jack FM about his experience so far in Oxford's COVID-19 vaccine trial. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, the government's revealed it wants to potentially reopen primary schools on the 1st of June. Leila Moran is the Liberal Democrat spokesperson for education and the MP for Oxford West and Abingdon. I asked her why she wanted the Education Secretary to answer a question on the government's plans. I've had parents, teachers contact me worried about the practicability of a lot of these plans. It doesn't make sense in the context, particularly of very young kids going back to school. And what I'm after is what is the scientific evidence that underpins these decisions because there's actually a lot about children and their ability to transmit not just to each other 
but also to adults that we don't know yet. And where have they come up with these ideas? He did say that he would publish the scientific advice, and I think that's a start. Um, but I think that he's going to find to open for the 1st of June and to have teachers on board with this and for them to feel safe, we're still quite a long way away from that. With your background, how easy do you think it'll be to social distance in classrooms? I think it's going to be near impossible to social distance in classrooms. I mean, certainly for reception in year one, that's just not how it works to teach those young kids. I mean, they you need to hold them. They touch everything. Um, and one of the ways that they're mitigating against that is to say, remove uh, all toys that can't be cleaned easily. Well, that's a lot of the toys in a classroom. Um, and where are they going to store the toys anyway? And suddenly you've got teachers who have to be not just there with smaller groups of kids, uh, the idea is that they'll create pods of kids and teachers in case one of them gets sick and then all of them self-isolate, which sounds reasonable, except that where is the teaching staff going to come from to split up classes into that many groups? And that's before you even consider all children going back at some point before summer, which is suggested as part of the guidance. I mean, uh, even in secondary, this is going to be difficult. So I think there's still a long way to go between the plan that they've got now, firstly understanding how it came about, understanding the science that they're relying on to suggest it's safe, but then also turning it into something that school by school they can actually achieve. And the one thing I will say is I think, above all, every head should be able to have full discretion over if they need to tweak something in the guidance, if they need to do something differently to make it work for their setting, it's the head in the end that should decide. And I would trust the head to do the right thing. The government says it's looking at ways to safely get primary schools up and running again, including staggering break times and utilising outdoor space more. Speaking about safety, a team-based business has created a new app to help people who might be scared to go out shopping again as lockdown rules are eased. SmartQ is free for customers and allows users to virtually queue to go inside a shop so they can wait somewhere safer like their car instead. Scott Muncaster is the Managing Director of Adactus. He told me how it works. The idea is you grab a ticket, wait until your number comes up and then go to the store. The only difference is we're doing this on a mobile app. So you would search for the store you want to queue for. Um, once you find it, ask to join the queue. You would receive a ticket into the app. So your number is one, two, three. And then you could go and sit somewhere safe. So maybe in your car or in an open space and wait for the retailer to tell you they were ready for you, that you were at the front of the queue. They would then send you another notification to the app and you would know it was time for you to enter the store. So the idea here is that you're not hanging around, stood in a maybe not so well-observed socially distanced queue and you can sit somewhere comfortable and safe until it's your turn to go in. Why do you believe that this app will improve safety for shoppers? As it stands, I don't see a way for more than two or three people to stand outside of any high street store before the queue starts to get in the way of somebody else's and I don't see that people will be happy in the long term queuing for the amount of time they have been queuing at peak times at the large superstores. So I think a way to, um, to, to reduce the time actually sp stood standing in a line and give people the chance to go and sit somewhere else, do something else, open up the laptop, 
play on the phone, listen to music, but most of all feel safe, uh, has to be good for both the retailers and the consumers. And what will be the incentive to get them on board? You've either got big queues in big spaces like car parks where people are uh, potentially moving away uh, and saying, I'm not going to stand in that queue. And uh, the costs we're talking about, it only takes one or two customers a day to justify the investment in a queue management system to make people happier, more comfortable. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week and the theme is kindness. At Jack FM, we joined radio stations across the country in broadcasting a Mental Health Minute, featuring messages from celebrities and even the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. This is a significant moment. Almost every station in the country is broadcasting this message. You are connected to 20 million people by the power of radio for this year's Mental Health Minute. We're living through a time which is taking its toll on everyone in different ways. We can all feel scared, alone and confused. And that's okay. Right now, we all need each other more than ever. And in the weeks and months ahead of us, we will all have an important role to play in being there for one another. Whether you're uniting in applause on a Thursday night, smiling at a neighbour's rainbow-filled window, or listening to the radio, remember, you're not alone. We're all connected. And sometimes just talking about how you're feeling can make a big difference. So right now, let's join together across the UK and reach out to someone. If you're struggling, it's important to talk about it. Or if you know someone who is acting differently, it's okay to ask how they are. Use this moment to send a message. Because Because we're we're all connected. connected. And you are not alone. That was a Mental Health Minute to mark Mental Health Awareness Week. In Oxford, Samaritans volunteers are offering a virtual shoulder for NHS workers to cry on during the pandemic, as the charity takes more calls from them than ever before. The local branch has about 180 volunteers. Currently, two-thirds of them are in isolation due to their age or needing to care for family members. Matt Williams is the Director for Outreach and told me the crisis is a challenge, but they're rising to it. Rather than having three volunteers answering phones at any one time, we now have two to allow for social distancing. Um, we're still answering the phone call on 116 123. We're still answering emails. Sadly, we've had to close our doors to any face-to-face visitors at our branch on Magdalen Road in Oxford, uh, which is a shame but entirely sensible. What's the demand been like on your phone lines? What are people most concerned about at this time? Samaritan's phone rings every six seconds and that hasn't changed at all. We're still taking an awful lot of calls from people. As you might imagine, a lot of people are worried about COVID-19 and I'd say about a third of the people we speak to on the phones at Samaritan's are currently worried about COVID-19 and about lockdown. What I would say, though, is that people aren't necessarily phoning because of the virus or because of lockdown it tends to be more that it's you know that they have other issues going on in their life and this is just making it worse so if you were anxious or depressed before that hasn't gone away and i would say you know we're we're taking an awful lot of calls from people who are feeling isolated and worried and it's really important that we're there to listen to them. The other group of people we're taking calls from more um, than ever are NHS staff, who, of course, are dealing, uh, have been dealing with some really difficult situations. And we're you know, offering a, a virtual shoulder to cry on and a, and a non-judgmental listening ear to speak with them as well. But, you know, uh, sadly, um, you know, the pandemic has probably only exacerbated the the general upset and distress that goes on in in life in general. So, yeah, we're as busy as ever. 
Do you expect that to continue or to be even more busy potentially once lockdown is eased as people are trying to adjust to what everyone's now saying is like the new normal? It's really difficult to predict. I think this is what's been so interesting with all of the um, of all of the, the situations that we're, we're facing at the moment. This is certainly in uncharted territories. But yeah, I would imagine that the need for Samaritans is only going to grow. People are sort of locked are locked down, you know, they're, they're sort of cocooned. And uh, of course, when people start coming out of that situation and facing the new normal, that's going to throw up a whole lot of challenges. And all I would urge is, is that if you are struggling, if you're worried, if you're having a difficult time, then Samaritans are there on 116-123 around the clock to listen to you entirely in confidence and without judgment. And I think it's important that people know that. There's a lot of messaging around at the moment saying services, the NHS are at full stretch, don't overburden services. All I would say is, you know, actually those difficult thoughts and feelings that we can all experience from time to time, you know, we need to be talking about them um, and talking about them before they start to get out of hand. And of course, sadly, there will be people who do end their lives, as there are every day in this country, because of all sorts of reasons. And uh, Samaritan's vision is that fewer people die by suicide. And that's what we want to, uh, you know, hold ourselves out to meet that challenge and, and give someone a, a friendly warm, listening, non-judgmental ear. We've also been told there's feeling among mental health services in Oxfordshire that people are holding back from asking for help during the crisis. Lizzie Dewhurst is the chair of the Oxfordshire Mental Health Partnership, which is made up of six local organisations working together to increase support. She says uncertainty about the future is affecting people's mental health. Things like having your children around all the time or... um, having to try to do the best for elderly relations uh, or being elderly yourself um, and that sense of isolation. Uh, I think that's terribly hard. But then, of course, there's the economic problems, people who are losing their jobs or losing their income or, again, have massive uncertainty about what the future will hold for them. That's in- incredibly tricky for people to uh, to maintain good mental health with those sorts of things going on. And then, of course, um, most importantly of all, people who, who actually know uh, people who have in their family or themselves who have the virus um, and uh, people who sadly died from it as well. So for all of those reasons, you know, I just think it is so much to juggle with whether or not you had a pre-existing mental health condition uh, this is a really tricky time for everybody and I know that my colleagues within the health system uh, are noting that for now people are kind of holding back from services and that might be because in a way they think that that there wouldn't be space within the medical um, services to to cope with them. Do you think that they should be doing that at this time though or is there the capacity for you to help? We would encourage people to present, to, to present and to seek help because um, there there is capacity. There are very very skilled clinicians and practitioners waiting to help people. Um, one thing that's happened and started up during the pandemic is that we now have uh, a mental health line. Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust has the details for the county's mental health helpline on its website. There's two numbers: one for young people and one for adults. And we're being told mental health research is vital if we're going to find better treatments and improve access to them. That from a psychology professor at Oxford Uni, who's running a study to find out how young people are coping during the lockdown. Here's Elaine Fox chatting to Joe from News. 
we do have a lot of research evidence from the past about how people cope with major crises, uh, things like you know, tsunamis, um, terrorist attacks and so on. And we know from that experience that actually most people are fairly resilient. So most people come through those experiences in, in, in a very resilient way. And um, we don't know specifically about a pandemic because we've never really had any situation like this before. But the assumption would be that most people will probably be quite resilient and that's what we want to find out. But we obviously know that there are certain groups who are particularly vulnerable and young people may well be one of those groups. People with existing mental health problems um, are definitely one of those groups. So I think it's really important to try and encourage people um, to get involved in research as much as possible. And there is a lot of research going on around the country and as I said our study is the Oxford Arc study, Achieving Resilience uh, During COVID and we're really particularly interested in uh, young people from 13 to 18 years and their parents if they also want to get involved. And do you think maybe at this time it might actually be a bit more difficult for, for young people and for their parents especially to maybe spot any signs that there's issues because children obviously are spending a lot of time indoors maybe on laptops and phones and things and it might just be harder to kind of work out if there is a problem. Yes, it, it may well be. Uh, it, it's an interesting thing because, of course, people are together probably a lot more now than they normally would be. So, in, in fact, some early signs are almost the opposite, that a lot of parents are saying they're actually talking to their children um, much more than they, they usually would. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think particularly for young people, um, not being in school, not seeing their friends, um, which is often a very important support group, um, but teenagers in particular, their peer group are really important important to them. And one of the very interesting things we found already in, in our study is that last week, so we're giving weekly updates about what we're finding. Last week, we found that 35% of young people said that actually they felt really lonely most of the time, compared to only 19% of their parents. And this was in spite of the fact that the young people on average were spending about three hours a day on social media. And they said that most of that time was spent socializing with their friends. So it, it seems it's still very early days and we need a lot more people to get involved in the study. But that indicates to us that even though people are socialising online, that may not be quite as good as actually meeting your friends in school or going out and socialising and meeting your friends. Are you worried that there will be an increase maybe among young people, but also adults in sort of things like self-harming and, and maybe even suicide at this time? Well, I think it is It is a real concern. Um, obviously, there's so many different stressors going on. We know that any kind of you know, stress situation like this is very, very difficult for people to deal with. And um, in, in many ways, there are so many things going on at the moment. Obviously, a lot of, of people are really worried about losing their jobs. If people have are self-employed or have small businesses, you know, they're really wondering, can they keep that business going um, with the downturn in the economy? Um, and I think just the general, you know, as you say, the general economic downturn is really making a lot of people question about will they have jobs when we come out of this and, and what, what will the, the new kind of world look like. So I think there's a lot of these changes going on that are really causing a lot of stress. And we know from my own research, I've done a lot of research on mental flexibility. And we know, for example, that when people are under a lot of stress, they tend to become much more mentally rigid. So in other words, they tend to refer to, to what has worked in the past. 
And of course, that's exactly the wrong way to react to a situation where everything is in flux and everything is changing. So what people really need to try and do is be as flexible as possible. In the past, they may well have relied on, say, going down to the pub or you know, going out to meet their friends, going to the park to, to meet people. Nowadays, we can only do that to a very minimal extent. So I think simply things like if you have access to the internet and to you know, video conferencing, all of that kind of thing um, is obviously really helpful. So you can socialize to some extent using those kind of methods. But somebody who may be very, very anxious may still you know, not be using those different methods of, of interacting with their friends and, and family. Or if you have a, a small business, for example, maybe starting to think about are there other ways you can do business? Is there anything you can do online? Will you need to change things when the lockdown begins to finish? You know, or will you be able to go on in the same way? And what's worked in the past simply may not work in the future. So I think those kind of examples of just trying to think of how you might need to change either your personal life or your working life as, as we move forward through this. Elaine says they're still recruiting. You can find out more at OxfordArcStudy.com. Now to a project which is delivering food packs to NHS staff during the crisis. The initiative, set up by former F1 McLaren boss Ron Dennis in March, started off with a dozen soldier volunteers in Bicester and it's now distributing 10,000 meals a day. Military veteran Chris Stewart is involved and he's been talking to our reporter Joseph Mabel. On that first Sunday, it was literally probably about a dozen of us with brooms uh, giving the place uh, a clean out. It's an old World War II uh, aircraft hangar uh, on the side of Bicester Airfield. Um, I believe it's been used for all sorts of things from car shows, car boot sales through to um, hosting TV sets and stuff like that. So not your average um, catering production facility. Um, and on the Monday, we did our first run of about 150 meals to the John Radcliffe. We were all hands-on doing everything uh, in the early days, from making the boxes through to storing the goods in the fridges, freezers, uh, to packing and then distributing them. And when you say that was sort of how it was in the early days, how's it kind of looking now then? Well, now it's completely uh, morphed from about 150 meals a day to just over 10,000 meals a day with 70 volunteers coming in on several shifts. We're now supporting double digits of hospitals from all the way up in Lancashire through to London, through to the local Oxfordshire area. That's incredible. And that's all just out of that one site. Yep, just out of that one site. It initially started with a, a dozen of us, then the Royal Pioneer Association, um, who were based in Bicester. Uh, they stumped up uh, some more manpower, but we very quickly realised that the site was, uh, or, or the task was going to require far more manpower. And Billy Delks knew a friend who created apps, and he created the app for volunteering. Uh, and it was put out to the wider uh, community within Bista, and the response has been phenomenal. That's so amazing, isn't it? Are you kind of impressed by just how many people like yourself are, are volunteering for this? Uh, absolutely, and that's been a great thing. Um, people you would never, ever have met um, before. Um, so there's ex-military, there's even some from the motorsport world, um, because it was Ron Dennis's idea to create this. So there's quite a strong presence from McLaren staff uh, through to former Honda uh, British Touring Car Team uh, staff uh, and one of the tyre producers uh, for the F1 as well. And then you've got some experts who came from a catering background as well, um, providing the subject matter experts for the uh, production of the food or the three different meals that we do. 
I don't know if you've been able to sort of speak or meet with any of the staff that are receiving the meals, but some of them are working just ridiculously long shifts. So what do you think it means to them to be able to get just at least this decent meal each day? We were made aware that the staff would go in for 12-hour shifts and weren't able to go and use their hospital canteen. So the snack pack was ideally to go in and, and sustain them during that 12-hour shift. When they left, they were able to take a what was called a meal pack, which was a ready meal, fruit, veg, juice, and some sort of uh, goodie, be it a brownie or a flapjack or, and things like that. And then for the NHS staff that was sick at home, there was a, a thing called a, f- a home pack, which was basically, in, in military terms, a five-day ration pack um, to see them through. And one of the things we used to do and still do was put in uh, notes in, into all the, the different packs, which gave the NHS staff a chance to uh, provide feedback, um, what they liked, what they didn't like. And, and so th- some of the feedback has been absolutely uh, outstanding um, and, and we've been able to adjust accordingly. But also uh, social media has been phenomenal of you know, various NHS staff just sort of saying, you know, we're cream crackered and this just lifts us up at the end of the day. Squadron Sergeant Major Janine Crowdy is also helping on the production line. I asked her why she volunteered. Pretty much, I'm down there every single morning from half past six in the morning until about one o'clock in the afternoon. And we provide ward packs to go to the wards. We provide home packs for the NHS nurses that are self-isolating. We provide day packs for the nurses just to make their lives easier. Does it get quite busy? So at the minute, we're pushing out ward packs. Um, 3,700 ward packs a day that we push out and then on top of that we push out um, the boost packs. Why do you think an initiative like this is good coming out of Oxfordshire? So they go in for a 12-hour shift and they're not allowed to leave the station so they can't go to a canteen, they can't go out and buy lunch so they're in there for the whole 12 hours so it just eases the burden for them really. That was Sergeant Major Janine Crowdy speaking about a scheme in Bicester which aims to deliver one million meals to the NHS during the pandemic. And teachers in Oxfordshire have been celebrated for going above and beyond during the pandemic. Rachel Smith is the head teacher of Ashbury C of E Primary and says there's been a lot of pressure for teachers to adjust to new ways of working. So we've set up um, Google Classroom for the children to be able to work from home. Um, teachers are monitoring that and working with the children and making sure that their well-being and their mental health is our first priority and then helping out with any extra questions to do with the curriculum. You mentioned then about mental health being your priority. What do you mean by that and how are you ensuring that you're keeping an eye, I guess, on people's well-being? So we're keeping in contact with um, the children regularly um, through Google Classroom and the uh, teachers making the phone calls home to the children Um, Also talking to the parents to make sure that they're happy and their children are comfortable at home doing the things that we've asked them to do, Um, but to make sure that actually they're happy and healthy um, and enjoying being at home because when they come back to school, um, it'd be really nice to have those children who are still happy um, and feeling positive about their education. Um, Obviously, it's really different to be educated at home than it is in the classroom at school. How much stress has this crisis brought you? It's been a roller coaster of emotions. Um, obviously, the first thing we want is the, the happiness and the healthiness of all staff and uh, the children. Um, we want nothing more than to invite the children back with open arms and only when the time is right and it is absolutely safe to do so. Um, so I think there's been a lot of pressure put on teachers recently um, with not only trying to change from teaching in the classroom to 
preparing lessons at home um, and making sure that everyone um, has the best in these just really difficult times. How do you feel about the possibility then of primary schools potentially opening up on the 1st of June? I think it's a really hard decision for anybody to make. Um, I think that we need the um, security and the understanding that actually it is safe for the children to come back um, and so that everybody has the confidence that their children will be returning to a safe environment where hopefully the spread of the virus is at an absolute minimum. Catherine Downton is the head of Gullet School in Henley. She's thanked her teachers and parents. I think it's always good to stop and recognise the contributions that um, people are making, and particularly at these really, really challenging times. Obviously, you know, a lot of focus rightly has been on workers for the NHS and workers in care homes, but it's good to to stop and remember what teachers are doing. So obviously we recognise there are so many people we've all depended upon, whether they're you know, the people staffing our supermarkets or collecting our bins, you know, it really has been an absolutely incredible effort by, by all critical workers to um, to keep things going in these um, unprecedented times. How have you adapted during the pandemic? Well, like all schools, we've really moved our school um, online and we've become a we've become a largely virtual school. And um, we feel, uh, you know, we feel just incredibly grateful that we were already a, a school that used a lot of the, the Google suite for education. Um, and so whilst we, we weren't ready, we were in a good position to do that. We're finding lots of, uh, of new ways uh, to, to manage. Um, obviously, not the same. There is nothing that can replace a teacher in front of a class. But we've been much more successful in moving online. And I think we might have anticipated, you know, and like everyone else, we've ended up doing lots and lots through video conferencing. How much support has has your teachers needed during the pandemic? How do you think they're all handling it? Well, I think people have have been absolutely um, amazing, actually. And I think that that's why things have have run as well as they have, because everybody has used their initiative um, and looked for things that uh, needed doing and, and have got on and done them. So our um, subject teams have been incredibly important and like play a huge tribute to our subject leaders who obviously have been faced with all the challenges of the GCSE grading but also they're the ones who are supporting their teams and all working together on thinking about how for their subject online le- learning works best and it's not the same in every subject uh, and really it's the fact that everybody has tried to be um, as independent, professional as possible, tried to solve their own problems, uh, shared their learning. It's that generosity that, that's made it possible to do what we can do. And the trust which runs Oxford's hospitals has thanked teachers for rising to the challenge of the crisis. Here's Professor Sir Jonathan Montgomery from Oxford University Hospitals. Many of our staff at uh, Oxford University Hospitals uh, have children Uh, And they would be uh, understandably concerned dealing with the COVID epidemic if they weren't able to think that their children were in safe hands. So we're very grateful for the teachers who kept schools open for key workers and enabled our staff to focus on the care of our patients. Why do you think it's important then that staff are able to be supported so they can focus on new research and things like that during this crisis? This is an international crisis and we all need to pull together. And what we want is everybody doing the things that they are best at. So for some of our staff, that is giving direct care to patients. Uh, For many people in Oxford, they're focused on uh, research, trying to find ways of alleviating the impact of the disease, uh, vaccines to prevent it, it spreading. They can't focus on those things if they're worried about their loved ones. 
So it's absolutely essential that we pull together as a society. And today we're celebrating the particular contributions that our teachers make uh, to looking after children and their welfare and enabling the rest of us to focus on uh, our broader roles uh, in supporting society. Why were you so keen in getting this message across? Well, we've picked up how much our staff uh, value the confidence they can place uh, in teachers at all levels from nursery through to schools. Uh, It takes the anxiety off their shoulders uh, and enables them to focus on uh, patient care. And our staff know how tricky this is for teachers. They know that, uh, like people in hospital, teachers have had to adapt to a set of circumstances they can't have imagined um, just six months ago. Uh, And what's more, they're doing that for our children, our key workers' children, at the same time as supporting other children uh, who are not at school uh, but being looked after at home by their parents. Uh, This is a major challenge and the way teachers have risen to it is just fantastic to observe. Sir Jonathan Montgomery there praising our local teachers. Thanks for listening to the latest podcast from the Jack FM news team on the coronavirus in Oxfordshire. Keep up to date with the latest news by giving us a...